Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. And today is bittersweet because we come to the end of our His Story series. If you are just joining us for the first time today, we set out with the uh, very crazy goal. Oh yeah, our uh, children's church is going to be making, making their way out pre-K to first grade, going with Casey out to Oregon side. You can go with her. Thank you, Casey. Uh, and uh, we started out on the first Sunday in January, that was January 7th, with a, a very bold goal. And that was to uh, go throughout, through the entire Bible in one year. And we started with Genesis that first Sunday, and now the last Sunday, incredibly, and on, almost unbelievably, uh, <laughs> if I can just be honest, uh, we come to our last message today in the book of Revelation. And there will be most assuredly... Uh, be more said and explored and how we apply what we've seen. But here is just a brief recap. First of all, God is sovereign. He is on his throne. This is his story that is unfolding from Genesis and as we will see today to Revelation. We may be tempted to think that we are the main characters in the story of our lives. But if God is truly who he has revealed himself to be, then there is no one, no one, no one more important than him. God is sovereign, but sin is real. And that means human choices have consequences. Sin always separates us from God's purposes. We've seen that all throughout Scripture. It destroys us, and it is the way that we destroy creation. We, as human beings, were made in the image of God to be His ambassadors to all creation. But sin has distorted and destroyed that purpose. And as we walk in rebellion, we become contributors to the brokenness of creation. And God could have left us that way, but he didn't. Instead, at the right time, God sent Jesus. After after over uh, 1500 years of revelation and the 39 books of the Old Testament, we get a promise that we celebrated this past week. And that promise is that the virgin will bear a son. And no longer is it in the distant future, but it's in the present as the angel Gabriel declared to Mary that you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that little baby grew up and he, uh, he, he served the Lord all of his days. He came in the spirit of the Lord and he died on a Roman cross as, an, un, as an, uh, an unjust punishment for a perfect man. And yet, even as he was dying at the hands of, of Roman brutality, he was the remedy, the sacrificial lamb that God had sent to prepare the way for us to receive the gift of salvation. On that, on, that, on that cross, Jesus was conquering sin and death. And all those who put their faith in Him can become a part of God's family. And as God's family, we are sent together on this mission called the Great Commission. We see it begin in the book of Acts and go all the way through the New Testament and all the letters. This mission is central of the church being the ambassadors, the restored ambassadors of God's grace, the proclaimers of God's kingdom, those who live according to God's design, those who define uh, life and sin and righteousness and unrighteousness according to God's dictionary. And as we join Him, as we walk in Him with Him, and we are, we are full of the Holy Spirit, living lives of worship, we will constantly be inviting others to join in and, be, and to, to, to become a part of the story that He's continuing to unfold in history. And that's why today as we come to the finale, you need to know that 
that, that what we're going to talk about is God doing something that is the fulfillment. It's the grand finale of his creative and recreative work. This second coming of Jesus Christ is known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. And I'll be honest, I started studying Revelation many, many weeks ago. And John's revelations are by far the most intimidating book to try to tackle in a Sunday. It's filled with such incredible symbols and visions and events. And it's also one of the most misunderstood and mis uh, misinterpreted books of the Bible. You're not going to hear me talk about timelines today. You're not going to hear me talk about prominent political leaders. You're not going to hear me talk about one world government systems or marks of the beast that are uh, somehow related to a one world currency that you might hear on Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity. We're not going anywhere near there because that's not the point of John's book. And it's very important for us to realize that from the outset today. You're not going to hear me predict the, the, the second coming and what date that's going to be because we know that that's just plain foolishness. And if you ever turn on the TV and hearing somebody do that, turn it off. Go read your Bible. You'll be much better off that way, honestly. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see the original intent that John had in writing the book of Revelation and what he tells these churches that he is writing to. And I pray that you will, you'll be encouraged, as I think they were when they received this book, and you'll be admonished to live for the glory of God and to be participants in His re restoration rather than contributors to the brokenness of this world. And so first of all, let's jump into it and let's see John's focus. Now first of all, this is not the book of Revelations. If you look at the top of uh, Revelation chapter 1, it's the revelation to John. This is one message. It was written about around AD 95, about five years after John wrote his gospel, a few years after John wrote his letters, the first, second, and third John. And he was exiled during this time on the island of Patmos. He was an old man, having preached this gospel message years and years and years, decades longer than the other apostles, having pastored the church at Ephesus that Timothy pastored, that Paul established. He pastored that church for over 20 years before he was exiled. The Roman emperor Domitian is now persecuting the church, and John has just been sent away because they couldn't kill him. Legend has it that during Nero's persecution, that John was in the middle of the Colosseum and he was dipped into a vat of boiling oil, which was a common practice in those days to try to kill Christians, and he survived. And so John is truly the last man standing out of all the other apostles. And he is on this island, and look at chapter 1, verse 10. You see the setting here. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit... On the Lord's day, and I heard a, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So John, even though he's exiled on the island of Patmos, he is continuing the pattern of worshiping on a Sunday. And as he is worshiping in the Spirit on Sunday, this vision comes to him. Like many Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, I think, I think these words here have a double meaning. John finds himself beholding uh, uh, worshiping the Lord in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, but he also finds himself full of the Spirit, being taken by the Spirit to behold the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord, the thing that the minor prophets of the Old Testament testified about, and the major prophets testified about. This Day of the Lord is the subject of the book of Revelation. So I think John kind of has a double meaning here. I was in the Spirit worshiping on the Lord's Day, and I was taken by the Spirit to oversee and to look at the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord that is coming in the future. 
And so this Greek word for revelation is simply that. It's, it's where we get our English word apocalypse, apocalypsis. And you think, no matter what kind of connotations you might have for that word apocalypse, the word apocalypse in the Greek literally just means unveiling. That's, where, that's why we call it the revelation. It's the, the unveiling of the end times in Jesus Christ through the eyes of John. And so the Spirit of God moves in John to unveil these future events. But why? Well, look at verse 11, chapter 1. That loud voice, like a trumpet behind John, said, Write what you see in a book and send it where? To the seven churches. Send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These seven churches were churches in Asia Minor. They were, they were churches that John would have known very well since he was in Asia Minor in Ephesus. And so he sends it almost to these sister churches telling them about what he's seen so that they could, they could face and endure the situations that were, that were tempting them, if you will. And you say, well, what were they facing? Well, we know that by reading about the chapters 2 and 3, we know they were facing persecution which is a great temptation that when you're persecuted that you would abandon the faith. We also know that they were facing uh, the, the temptation of wealth. You say temptation of wealth. That doesn't sound like a temptation. That's exactly what it was. Because they were being challenged to put their trust in money rather than God. And so if I can, if I can forego having faith and I can just buy my way out of this persecution, I'll do that. Right? I can trust in my money and the security that I think that brings me instead of God. I'll trust in that comfort. And if you base your Christianity on comfort, then your Christianity will be proven to be shallow. Because comfort does not last. Right? And so they're facing persecution. They're facing uh, temptation uh, to trust in wealth. They're facing temptation to, to sin and to be immoral with the culture around them. And all of these things were presenting challenges to their faithful obedience to Christ and to the mission of His kingdom. And so John writes to these churches this revelation to admonish their faithfulness. So maybe somebody sees my post on Facebook and says, Wow, your pastor is preaching through the entire book of Revelation today. What did you learn? Well, I learned that John wrote to these seven churches to inspire and admonish their faithfulness. That's why the book of Revelation is written. There's no secret codes. There's no blood moons, Right? Uh, you know, I, I read the other day, there's going to be like a great wolf, big blue moon or something like that. Don't, when people say, look, what is that sign in the sky? I saw it this morning. There was a, there was a hippo sized asteroid a mile long that came, uh, within some, how, how many millions of miles? And I'm like, wow, that's news. Why is that news? Because people eat that stuff up, which is why so many Christian authors have taken that and applied that same mentality to the book of revelation. Because if you think that they've got the secret code, you're going to keep buying their stuff. I'm not selling anything today, okay? So you can take this for what it is. This is just a plain exposition of John's revelation. And so revelation is meant to admonish the faithfulness of the seven churches and to the churches throughout the rest of the generations that John would never meet. And so what is the message to these seven churches expounded just a little bit more? Well, these would be, these would be a great sermon series one day because the message of the churches is simply that, hey, God sees you. Hey, church at Ephesus, God sees you perfectly. Hey, church in Abbeville, God sees you perfectly. You're not playing games with Him. I see what you're doing with what I've given you. I see what you're doing with what I, the, the people that I've entrusted you with. 
I, I see it all. And for some churches, he's got commendation. You've held firm. You've been steadfast. For other churches, it's you've abandoned your first love. For other churches, it's I wish you were hot or cold because you're lukewarm and I just want to spit you out. Uh, the, this, the, this will make a great sermon series one day. Is we, we could look more in depth at the, the message to these seven churches. And we'll, we'll, we might do that sometime. But for now, that's the message. I see you. I see you perfectly. I see what you should be doing. I see what you aren't doing. I see the games you're trying to play. I see the religious masks you're wearing. And you're not fooling me. You need to be obedient in the face of the situation or in light of the situation that you are facing. And it's all they're all unique situations, but they're judged on their devotion to Jesus and to his mission. And this persecution was so intense that many of the Christians that John was writing to would have interpreted the book, I mean the uh, the rest of the book where there's all kinds of hell on earth. This is what it can be described as. Many of the Christians would have said, "Yeah, we're living through that right now." Because the, the, the family members and the church members that have been used as human torches to, to light Nero's garden. Or the thousands upon thousands of Christians who were slaughtered uh, by lions the first day that the Colosseum opened. Over three to 5,000 Christians were martyred that day. They're not thinking that some great tribulations in the future like we do because we live in American comfort. They're saying, yep, we're there. It's pretty bad. And so, John, what do you have to say to us that's going to give us some kind of hope to cling to? And maybe that's what you're wanting today as well. And that's what the book of Revelation is going to provide for you like it provided for them. And look at Jesus' message in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. <coughs> then I turned, this is John speaking, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands rep representing those churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And look at verse 17. He says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So churches, I've got, I've got your life. I've got your death. Now look at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's the the word that's, that divides everything into what's real and what's fake, fake. What's right and what's wrong. What's true and what's false. Jesus' message to the churches is, I see you. My word judges you perfectly. You cannot play games with me. And so you need to be living lives of faithful worship. Why? Why should you be living a life of faithful worship? How do we know this isn't all just a fairy tale that some old guy dreamed up on an island back a long time ago? And John says, because I didn't just hear it, I saw it with my own eyes. And it's the culmination of everything that God told us about all throughout his entire revelation. And that's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. Because John says, if you want to know why you should be faithful on this earth, just let me give you a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. In chapter 4, it says after this, verse 1, I looked, and behold, a door standing open heaven, open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. These, these things that John sees are unlike anything that anybody else has ever seen. 
Apart from Isaiah, who sees the Lord high and lifted up, John sees God seated on his throne. And so as Christians are enduring chaos, John's in, in exile on an island, people are being tortured, people are facing all kinds of evil. What's going on in heaven? Because in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, fix your minds on things that are above where Christ is. So what's going on where Christ is that should impact the way that I live here on earth? That's why chapters 4 and 5 exist. So look at chapter 4, verse 8. What's going on? Worship. And the four living creatures, chapter 4, verse 8, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We, we united with heaven when we sang that song earlier. When you sang Revelation song, you united with what's going on in heaven right at this very moment. Skip down to verse 11. Another praise that comes out. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And yet there's this, there's this question that rings out that John hears. And that question, look at chapter 5, verse 2. What's this question? What's the question that we sang in, in that offertory song? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And it seals. Who is worthy? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. What is John saying here? John's saying God has a will and a purpose for his creation that's, that, that has been stained and corrupted by sin. And there's only one person who can take it from where it is now to where God wants it to be. And it's not any of us. And it's not any political ruler. It's not a president. It's not a king. It's not a congress. Heaven never shuts down. Okay? There's only one. The eternally faithful. Look at what it says in, in verse 5. The eternally faithful lion of Judah, the root of David. We sang those two. He's conquered. And you say, wow, the lion of Judah. It's kind of brings about this imagery of this ferocious creature bearing its teeth. And then the root of David, this ageless one who was promised long ago to King David, who conquered David, slain his thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands, and he's mightier than him. Oh, what, what a great military leader who's coming to conquer. That's what John hears. But then look at what he sees. Look at what he sees. He sees in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb. What? A lamb? A lamb that's been slain? How is a puny, fuzzy little lamb that was slain going to conquer anything? It's been conquered. How is it going to conquer anything? And John is perplexed at what he's seen because he's expected to see somebody that the earth will fear and tremble at. It's not going to tremble at a lamb, is it? Well, God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, and this Lamb will conquer, is what verse 6 says, and what the rest of chapter 5 says. Look at verse 9. When all of heaven sees this Lamb, they declare, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Basically, you're the only one that can accomplish God's will for this earth. You're the only one that can make it come about. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's what we sang earlier, isn't it? So I love that song. And so the Lamb is worthy. He's able. He's the only one who can open the scroll. And John says in verse 11, And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with, one, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see, the declaration of heaven describes what is happening next. And in chapters 6 through 16, you come to this main meat of this. I'm sorry, I skipped a slide. My wife, my wife is a wonderful note taker. And, uh, and so if you ever need notes from me because I skipped slides like I just did, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick you up later. Okay. Uh, and so, so what's coming next? The main meat of Revelation it, are these chapters about the day of the Lord in chapter 6 through six, 16. And what happens is in these chapters, the Lamb opens the scroll. The Lamb breaks the seals, which represents the will of God for the restoration of all things. Remember, that's what we've seen. Creation, fall, redemption, and now where are we at? We're at restoration. The day of the Lord. The coming of the Lamb of God who is slain. And He is going to open the seals and bring about what is coming for the end of times. And in these chapters, these, these, this message for the churches... Remember, John is admonishing them to be faithful. And the main point is to describe the evil of being caught in rebellion, of walking against the will of Almighty God and the need for repentance. John's, John's vision is to admonish them to be obedient to what God has called them already to do. There's not a, there's not a new message for, for them here. The call is to be obedient because this is what God is going to do. And you do not want to be on the side of His justice being unleashed and His wrath being unleashed on this earth. And so don't reject Christ in your persecution. God will avenge your blood. Don't be lured by the affluence of earthly treasure. It will not sustain you when the world falls apart. Don't give in to temptation for you will one day stand before God in judgment. And in chapter 6 through 16, there's three sets of seven. And this is not some kind of numerological code. You remember, if you remember, if you remember from our study back all the way back in Genesis, the number seven, because God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh, the number seventh was seen as wholeness and completion and perfection. And so these seven, uh, I mean, these three sets of seven are just meant to say, this is the fulfillment of. Of all things. This is the fullness of judgment. This is the fullness of wrath. This is the fullness of God's holiness being poured out upon the earth. But the point of chapter 6 through 16 can be summed up in how people respond to this judgment. You know, that's why we have an invitation every Sunday. We're saying, judge yourselves now according to the way the Spirit has led you because you don't want to stand in this judgment. You see, you're not just, you know, somebody who gathers on a Sunday to hear a message and just sit idly by. You are called 
to examine yourselves. You're called to unite with God in the Spirit so that the Spirit of God can use the Word of God to convict you of sin, to call you into new levels of new places of obedience. And if you're not doing that, you're not judging yourself, then God says you will be judged by me. If you won't let, if you won't submit and let the truth of God judge you here, then oh, the judgment that comes is what you should fear in these chapters. So when you read these chapters, it's meant to be a warning to say, trust me, be faithful and respond to this God. Not only is he worthy, but he is holy and no sinner will stand in his sight. And so that's the way that that John makes sure to mention and help keep us on point throughout all of this. Look at Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. John makes sure that we understand that in the midst of all this, the response of the people on the earth is in focus, is in heaven's focus. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which they cannot, which cannot see or hear nor walk. Nor did they repent of their of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now look at chapter eleven, verse thirteen. Chapter eleven, verse thirteen. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. And gave glory to the God of heaven. That's repentance. They gave glory to the God of heaven because they recognized His judgment had come upon them. So some don't repent. They harden their hearts. Others repent. And now look at chapter 16. Chapter 16. Verse 9. Judgments continuing to be poured out. Once again, there are some people who see this as a, as a, a timeline of events that are unfolding. Other people see this as the, the same event, the day of the Lord, described in three separate ways. But at the end, of, or in, in chapter 16, when it's all coming to an end, people's res, the people's response is still in focus. Revelation chapter 16, verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And then look at verse 11. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And so the main sum and substance of the book of Revelation is a description of the awful terror that is the day of the Lord. You don't want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath in those days. And you say, well, I don't plan on, on being in it. I plan on being raptured like I've sung all these times. You need to know that there's, there's, there's controversy about that. Because nowhere in the book of Revelation is the rapture mentioned. And that's kind of one of those things you're like, hey, I really wish John had written that in. I do too. I, I really do. But look at how much in the Bible is devoted to faithful enduring of suffering. Is all, is all that for naught? No, at this time, if, if, We're called to endure. We will experience the sweetness of God's presence that is unparalleled. And if you're one of the ones who make it through the day of the Lord, then I promise you, you're not alone. But more than likely, and this might disturb you, more than likely you'll be killed. If you stay faithful to the Lamb who was slain. Because that's how the nations come to repent. 
is by watching the people of the land lay down their lives so that the gospel can go forth to every people and tribe and tongue. This great tribulation, is it happening? Is it going to happen? We don't know. Nobody can say certainly. But this false peace, the war, the famine, all the death, Christians being persecuted and martyred, in all of it, the church still bears witness and the world cannot kill it. And we're not given an answer to all of our questions. And I told my Sunday school class, because we've been studying through the book of Revelation, it's not that God doesn't want us to ask questions of Scripture. That's great. But Satan can set a trap through faithful questions as much as he can set a trap through pride. You say, why do you even say that, Ryan? Because, I mean, tons, scores of Christians have been wooed away into thinking that the Bible is some kind of code book to help them discern the end times rather than take what's plainly there in the Great Commission to take the gospel to every people and tribe and that you are the means that God wants to use so that that can be accomplished. It's not about a code. It's not about how long the tribulation will last. It's not about whether or not we'll be here or not. It's about the fact that people repent when they see Christians lay down their lives sacrifice themselves, deny themselves, and take the gospel without a desire to preserve their own life, to save their own life. They take the gospel to all nations. That's when people repent. Because when they hear the word of truth, the Spirit of God, just like you heard in Elizabeth's testimony, the Spirit of God is powerfully at work in these people because God's longing is that all should be saved and none should perish, right? We've said that over and over and over again. How is it going to be accomplished? Not through American democracy. It's not there. It, it's not even through American ideals. It is through the kingdom of heaven being unleashed in the lives of God's people who choose to walk with him and not against him. They choose to lay down their lives instead of fight for their lives. This is the great paradox of the kingdom of God. And after, after, uh, after this, there's a great battle that's set up. And look, look at uh, Revelation 16, 16. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. You've heard about Armageddon. It's, a it's an actual battlefield over in the Middle East. And Napoleon said it was the greatest battlefield of all time, just from a military standpoint. And this battle between uh, the kingdom of, uh, of, of the earth known as Babylon in chapter 18, which is not a physical, a literal kingdom. It's a general title representing uh, these nations that trust in themselves and, and their wealth. It's that kingdom versus the kingdom of the Lamb. And so chapter 18 is about how it's just no contest for this great kingdom of Babylon to face the kingdom of the Lamb. But it's interesting here. Because heaven's peeled back again and John doesn't see an army gathering arms. But he sees a marriage supper. I've always been perplexed by Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You can only prepare a table before somebody in the presence of their enemies if you already know the outcome of the, of, of the enemy's strategy. You know they're defeated. And so there's no reason to worry. You can only have a marriage supper if you know that the battle that will come next is already won. 
And that's exactly the attitude of the Lamb and all of His saints who are called the armies of heaven. And you want to know how they conquer? Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. This rider on a white horse comes. And verse 12 says his eyes are like a flame of fire. And in verse 13 it says that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. How is it dipped in blood and the battle hasn't already even taken place? It's dipped in blood because it's his own blood. Because as our great leader, Jesus himself did not fight for his own life. But instead he laid it down so that every tribe and tongue and nation could come into the kingdom of God. And so this robe is dipped in his own blood. And yet he comes and meets out justice. And in, in, in the text of one of my favorite hymns, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, it, this is where the language comes from in verse 15, that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he will tramp out the vineyard. And he will, he will mute, mete out justice to the earth at this great judgment. And that's what chapter 20 is about. Chapter 17 through 20 are about this judgment that comes. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 15. Chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is what we call hell. But the Bible is not yet finished. Two chapters left telling us about what comes next. This eternal restoration that after evil was fully and finally judged... That those who have trusted Christ are gathered and they receive this restored creation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20, uh, 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The rest of chapter 21 describes what it will be like to be eternally joined to Christ and to dwell in the beauty of His presence. And the only thing that John can compare it to are all of these precious gemstones that he's seen on earth. And so I know we sing about streets of gold, but I, I don't really think they'll necessarily be gold. It's just, it's beyond what John could describe. And he's, he's, he's using something that he knows to describe something that he doesn't know. And he talks about jasper and carnelian and, and pearls and, and sapphires and emeralds and onyx and so on and so forth. But all of this, all of this, and this is where we miss it. All of this pales in comparison to the real reason that heaven is heaven. Look at verse 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And so let's think about this idea of restoration. What was God's original purpose for Adam? To live forever in His presence in a place of perfection. Check. It's been restored. What was God's promise to Abraham? Well, we remember from Genesis 12. It was to use Abraham's family to restore God's blessing to the world. Check. All the nations represented here. 
And just to double down on that, what was God's promise to David? That one of his heirs would be enthroned for all eternity. And what do we find? The lamb seated on the throne David's from David's line. Check. What was God's promise to Jesus? That the nations would bring their adoration and that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Check. The New Jerusalem is a great city where all cultures and their diversity work together to the glory of God. And so John exits this vision, so to speak, and he, he gives us the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse 16. Once again, Jesus turns his attention to the churches. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. You see, the book ends with the church and with a message that we are meant to proclaim until our last breath. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, this is the message that you should proclaim. Behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is coming back. And he will bring his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And skip down to verse 17. The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, that is the church, say what? Come. In that one word lies our mission. The Great Commission. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then John ends it in chapter, chapter 22, verse 20, saying, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John adds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. wonder if you can say that today. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that the cry of your heart? Come. What is Christianity if it's not the longing to be in the presence of Almighty God for all eternity but beginning right here? right now. So which kingdom are you living for? Where is your trust? If God's design throughout all of the scriptures has been for you to fix your eyes on the truth about His character and the truth about His Son, can you really find any justification to live for anyone else or to find life in any other way? I meant what I said this morning. Life is not judged on Facebook, but I couldn't help but to post the cry of my heart. Jesus will one day stand and speak to the church that is at First Baptist Abbeville. 
And he will judge us based on what we have heard, the testimony that we have received, and whether or not we have obeyed his invitation to join him on his mission. We cannot, we cannot do anything else but follow his calling. We cannot, we must not. We must guard this with all of our heart and all of our soul to recognize that the call is continually to submit ourselves to Him and to take part in His story and to have the hope, not on this earth, but the hope that can only be found as we fix our eyes on eternity. We'll do that this afternoon as we think about Doug Messick dead and gone to another place. But is that hope just for funerals? No! It is for life itself, every moment of every single day. Is that how you define the Christian life? And if not, what are you doing? And today the focus is on the same thing it was on in chapter 6 through 16. How will the people respond? May we be found faithful to respond in submission and obedience. And to repent, to repent, and to follow Him, for He is worthy.